0: Thank you, Bert. Good evening, everyone. Could you turn your Bibles to First Thessalonians chapter four, verse 1? one? First Thessalonians chapter four, verse one. This was uh, last evening on sanctification, and uh, the last time I taught this subject was uh, when I was in Marion, Iowa. That was the last uh, church plant there in Iowa, and I did only like three hours. I think I did the three stages of sanctification, and when I did justification, I think I just did two hours. So. Um, you, I, you guys were the beneficiaries of me doing an even be, a better job than I did in the first t- time around for those two subjects. So this will be our ninth and final hour on the doctrine of sanctification. We'll be looking at sanctification as it's taught in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1-8. through 8. And uh, the next subject, I was just uh, talking to uh, Clay before the class, the next subject we'll be doing, I've, I've been praying about this because as I said before, I have many doctrines I wish to teach you, uh, I will teach you in the future, trying to figure out which going to be the next one? Which is the most? Uh, which would be the benef- most beneficial for the congregation? People say, "Well, how do you determine that?" Well, I, I, the way I look at it, they're all in the Word of God, so you can't lose either way. It's just what's the best one. So that usually uh, comes about. From a lot of times talking to people or something I, I, in my study or prayer that I, well my uh, that I it comes to me so I've decided we're going to do the next subject and it's going to be we're going to be in it maybe probably at least a year I would think I don't know it might be longer uh, it's the it, it's the day of the Lord and uh, so uh, that's going to entail a lot of things just if you if I was you I would uh, download from our, our website my website the, uh, the the subject of the day of the Lord actually I updated it. Uh, when I finished off Second Thessalonians, which references the Day of the Lord. But we're going to do the Day of the Lord. and then that. So, the, and then In this Day of the Lord series, there's going to be a lot of different doctrines in there. So, for instance, we'll be talking about the Day of the Lord in the Old Testament. We won't spend too long on that because some of those things we've already covered. But uh, we'll be doing the 70th week of Daniel and the tribulation period. Uh, so the, we'll be talking about the first half of the tribulation and the last half of the 70th week of Daniel. We'll be talking also about the uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, the Russian-led invasion of uh, of Israel. We'll be talking about that, and then we'll also be talking about the different uh, seven-seal trumpet and bowl judgments that will be uh, taking place during the the last three and a half years of the 70th week. We will also be studying the second advent of Jesus Christ uh, when he comes to start uh, when he comes to establish the kingdom on earth and dispossess Satan, imprison Satan and the fallen angels for a thousand years. Then we'll also be talking about the rapture and how it relates to the the day of the Lord because Paul discusses this in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. So we'll be talking about we're delivered from the wrath to come. We're going to go through those passages that will show show you in the word of God why we're delivered from these things and uh, from the tribulation period, the events of the tribulation period. But not only that is the day of the Lord involved you know, the semi week of Daniel, the second advent of Christ, but we're also going to be doing uh, the doctrine of the millennium in this series. So we're going to be in this, in the millennium, we'll talk about the millennium and the different aspects of it. And then uh, to wrap it all up, we'll talk about the the creation of the new heavens and new earth, because the subject of the day of the Lord, that expression, or the, the great day and all that, it's related to these different dispensations. So uh, that is what we'll be doing in the next subject. So we'll be in that for a long time. So a lot of these series I have, like the church that we're going to do in the future, it has different doctrines in it. You know, like uh, like, Prince the Church will have salvation, sanctification, election, predestination, we'll go through all those things. The rapture is involved in this series in the church. A pastor teacher as another doctrine we'll be learning in in regards to that series of the church. So the Day of the Lord is our next uh, subject. I think you're going to really enjoy it. It's been a while since I taught this series on the Day of the Lord, since I I think I uh, toward the end of um, my first uh, church plant in Prairie View in 2008, 9, and 10, and I finished it off when I was in Marion, Iowa. And uh, I finished it off with uh, the millennium and uh, the day of the Lord. So uh, the, um, the new heavens and the new earth. So that is a preview of coming attractions. So uh, that should be a lot of fun. And one of the reasons why people talk about, you know, I, I, you got to be very careful when it comes to eschatology, you know, the uh, prophecy. Some people overemphasize it. I, I, I have a problem with guys who just do it. That's all they seem to be doing. To me, that's riding hobby horses. And they do it because they know they can draw a crowd with that. Okay. Anytime you're in the book of Revelation or Daniel, you're going you're to draw a crowd mostly. I'm not like that. I, I go through these, the whole Council of God. So I go through the different books. Whatever that comes up in the book, I'm going to address it. Okay, And so eschatology is very important because it tells us that we need to orient our lives to what God's going to do for us in the future, okay? In a resurrection body. So we need to live in a manner that's consistent with who God's going to make us to be, complete us at the rapture, resurrection of the church. And also, if we want to get rewards at the Bema Seed. So prophecy is a motivation. For us to live holy lives, godly lives, the other reason is, and some guys I also know the other guys go the other side where they don't they don 't teach prophecy at all. I think um, I remember the colonel uh, he taught um, he, uh, he he did his dissertation on the Armageddon campaign. most people don 't realize that when he was at Dallas, but a lot of times he had a lot of his contemporaries, like Pentecost and Wolward, they were spending a lot of time and their their subject was the uh, you know, the, uh, they did a lot of eschatology, and they really did a good job uh, developing it, especially all those guys out of Dallas where the colonel came from. So he, I think he kind of went away from that, not that he never taught on it, uh, like the rapture or anything like that, but he didn't spend a lot of time on it because he wanted to develop the spiritual life. God, but the Holy Spirit, was leading him in that area, which is fine, you know. So, I, uh, But with my, my my whole thing is i, I got to teach the whole counsel of God, and there's some subjects that are exciting, so I'm, I have no problem talking about election predestination or teaching the book of Habakkuk or Jude and or, or, or Revelation or Daniel. You know, some of the books that are more, would be considered more exciting by people. So to me, if it's in the word of God, I'm gonna teach it and that's the reason why we're gonna do the study of prophecy. And it's also, it's interesting, Um, another thing about that is that we live in a day and age where a lot of scholars are teaching people, like teaching guys in seminary that you can't really talk to people who are non-Christians about the Bible because they have no frame of reference because it's not like it was 50, 60, 100 years ago in this country where everybody knew about the Bible influenced by the Bible uh, but uh, even if they were not believers in Jesus, okay, so they say you really have to go and talk on their level, I say that's garbage because here's why Everybody, and you probably get this when there's a crisis, nine one one. I I had it, and uh, the Gulf, first Gulf War. The non-believer, just you know, think about when I was a non-believer. Uh, I was into you know the horoscopes and all that stuff. I was big time into that, you know, when I was like a teenager. So everybody wants to know what's happening in the future when stuff is going on in the world and crazy stuff and wars, it, like the first Gulf War. I had people at work coming up to me, who not non-believers. Is this it? Is this the is this the you know the end of the world thing and stuff? I was like, how? Oh. So you can you can evangelize the non Christian with prophecy, eschatology, study of future things. That's how I got saved. A guy who led me to the Lord was one of those guys in my band who uh, was like my old big brother I never had. And uh, older brother, I never had because I was the oldest in my family, and he was like my mentor in guitar, and he was a great, great friend. let me the Lord, and he was in the prophecy as well, and so that's how he got me interested in the Bible and seeing my need for Jesus. Okay, so there's a lot of reasons why we are going to do study eschatology, the, the prophecy, the Word of God, and it's, it really, it it, 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 I find also for myself every time I have to teach a subject that deals with the, the future, the rapture, or the, or the tribulation period, the second advent. it really gets you, it, it puts, I don't know, something something that he just, God wants you to know this, and he wants you to be encouraged, and he wants you to see, yeah, there's some wild things, great things that are coming, fantastic cataclysmic events are going to happen, and it's related to us. So, uh, and what he's trying to do, because he's trying to establish his kingdom on the earth with him, with us, and Jesus ruling over the works of his hands. So this is, he wants us to know what's got to take place for that to take place. So, a lot of cool things we can get from uh, the study of prophecy. All right, so that being said, let's finish off a subject, the doctrine of sanctification, which is not a quote-unquote sexy subject for a lot of uh, people. It's not you know, a subject a lot of Christians are flocking to, to hear, but actually, quite frankly... It's the foundation of our spiritual life. It talks about our spiritual life. It talks about the completion of of, of God's work in our lives to become like his son, Jesus Christ. The doctrine of sanctification is extremely important. So uh, with that being said, I look around. You all know what to do. I know where you are, where you live, and all your thing. So let's take that moment of silent prayer. Let's prepare ourselves. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day, another gift that you've given to us to experience creation, to bring glory to you, to fellowship with you, your Son, the Spirit, and other like-minded believers in the body of Christ. We thank you, Father, for electing us and predestinating us in eternity past to adoption as sons, to be conformed to the image of your Son. We thank you, Father, for the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. We also thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives from regeneration to resurrection and we thank you for the tremendous uh, things that you've done for us at our justification, will do for us uh, at the rapture, the resurrection of the church, and the bama seat, and also the tremendous future that we have uh, in the millennial reign with your son and ruling over the works of your hands with him, and also the new heavens and the new earth. We just thank you, Father, for each person in the body of Christ here assembled tonight that has taken time out of their weeks, their busy weeks with their jobs and businesses and whatnot. I just thank you for each and every one of them, and I pray, Father, that you would provide for them through the ministry of the Spirit, uh, their spiritual nourishment, because your word teaches us that man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds out of your mouth. I pray, Father, that the Spirit would do a mighty work through not only your people in the audience, but also myself, by the power of the Spirit, help me to deliver the message in a fashion that is uh, glorifying you and ministers to your people. I pray the Spirit would use me mightily and also the audience mightily, And uh, I just pray, Father, that the purpose for which you gave me this gift would be accomplished, which is to give spiritual nourishment to your people so that all of us in the body of Christ in this ministry can grow in the grace and knowledge of our great God and Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. So it is in his name we pray. Amen. All right, the doctrine of sanctification, we wrap it up here. Uh, this evening by noting First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. You know, we talk about First Thessalonians and a lot of guys, only time they venture into that book is uh, because of the rapture, is talked about that extensively in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And also the day of the Lord is referenced in First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through uh, 12. And so there's a lot of people talk about that. But the, actually the First Thessalonians is a great study in the first three chapters of how a pastor... Must look what what a pastor must look like. What his ministry must look like. What kind of person he is. Most people don't realize that. And so when I do the when I re uh, redo the uh, series on. Um Pastor Teacher, I finished. I did a series on Pastor Teacher uh, when I was in Massachusetts before I came here, and uh, I wrote an ex- updated the article on our website. And uh, and that's that. Those three chapters of First Thessalonians really show uh, Paul and Sylvanus's great pastoral love for their people. And so, uh, but but you look at this past, uh, this book also. It's a major section on sanctification, in particular, experiencing sanctification. And so this is why it's, uh, I'm, I have just chosen uh, tonight to wrap up this study with this passage, with these first eight verses in First Thessalonians chapter 4. And so uh, what I'll do tonight is I, I'll be reading from my, we'll reading from our NIV translation, but also as I'll be putting, uh, showing you my translation uh, as well. And the reason why I do that, not that I, I think the NIV is not good enough, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is with my translation I'm able to uh, be more interpretive than they are. Uh, you know, all translation has interpretation involved. Anybody who's translated into any language, including the, from the biblical languages uh, to the uh, English language or any other language, there's interpretation involved. Uh, that doesn't mean it's guesswork, it's interpretation, okay? There's, there's, there's a discipline, and there's rules to interpretation. So I, I so for instance, and in, i in, give you an example, uh, in the, you'll see in the modern translations when a present tense comes up, and it's clearly talking about a regularly occurring activity. They'll put it in the English present, like uh, he uh, he he runs to the store, okay, or uh, he sees the girl, okay. That verb sees isn't it runs is in the present tense in English. However, there's different nuances, uh, different. Uh, uh, different types of present tense. Uh, there's a nomic present, which talks about a spiritual axiom. There's a, what we call a state of present, where the subject exists in the state indicated by the verb. There's a regularly occurring action, a customary present. that's also so I try to bring that out in my translations, which makes it a little bit more wordier, but you're really getting really close to what the original languages say when I do that. And uh, so uh, I, if I was on a translation committee, I couldn't translate that that way, but I can do that with you because I'm your interpreter. Okay, so my tra- interpre- my translation actually really reflects quite a bit my interpretation. So uh, so much so that I can tell you when I look at my translation, okay, this was a customary present, or this was a nomic present, or this was a consummate of the arist, or whatever. So sanctification, as we wrap it up, let's go over what we've studied a little bit thus far. A little uh, basic things that we've uh, come away with this study is sanctification is a technical theological term for the believer who's been set apart, key phrase, set apart through the baptism of the Spirit at the moment of justification for the purpose of serving God exclusively. So when you think of sanctification, I'm set apart to serve God exclusively, okay? And that's very, very important. So what uh, you see also, the NIV will use the term holiness or holy. We saw that in Romans 6. Holiness is related to sanctification. In fact, as we noted right at the introduction of this subject, the word saints, Hagios. And it's an adjective. It's in a, it has a substantive use of the adjective, which basically means the saints or the holy ones. In fact, I think the NIV in many spots translates this word in those instances, not saints, but the holy ones. And so there's nothing wrong because that's what we are. So we really literally are the holy ones. And so, that's, uh, so we're like, you know, and the angels are considered holy ones, the elect angels. So you and I are holy ones, just like Jesus is the holy one, Okay, But we are also holy ones because of our faith in him at justification and our union and identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit. So this leads us to the, the three stages of sanctification. Unlike justification, which is a one-shot decision, when you, you and I as unregenerate people, non-believers, become a part of God's family by making the decision, the, uh, the uh, non-meritorious decision to trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. So it happens at that one moment Okay? And then that's it. And so God, at that moment, when we do this, the, the, as we pointed out in that subject, the, the Father credits or imputes his son's righteousness to us. And it, simultaneously, all in one shot, he goes, You're de- I declare you justified. I declare you righteous. So some translations, they translate it righteous. Okay? So you and I are, are as righteous as God. Not because of anything we've done. It's because of what God did based upon the merits of the object of your faith. So justification, so important, is a one-shot decision. False teachers are already out there doing this, and it's, it's starting to proliferate where they're saying that justification is, in, is progressive. Baloney. They're confused. They're in error. They're false. Very bad. Very bad. Then we have sanctification, like salvation, is in three stages. We know that because of the tenses in the New Testament okay so in sanctification our subject we have what we call the positional aspect of our sanctification the experiential and then what I call the perfective uh, the kernel where I learned it from uh, this subject and, and uh, J. Vernon McGee and other guys from Dallas they used to use the term ultimate sanctification uh, when they related to the, the, the being perfected in a resurrection body I like to call it perfective and so it hit me one day I just call it perfective okay that makes it more sense so positional experiential and perfective what's positional it's what it's how what God did for us at our justification, and it's how He looks at us, okay? And, and it's, it's what He's done for us at our justification. What has He done for us at ju- at sanct at our justification? Well, through the baptism of the Spirit, which is related to sanctification, because we're sanctified because of the Holy Spirit's work at our justification, and in particular the baptism of the Spirit. So we're we're identified with Christ and His crucifixion, death. Burial resurrection session at the right hand of the father why because that's important because because this is' we're, because we're united to Jesus Christ and we're under his headship that's why and those events in his life provided for us are so great salvation sanctification and deliverance from sin Satan and his cosmic system okay so we have positional. It's what God did for us in the past. Think of positional, P, past. What he did for, at, at our justification. It's how he looks at us. He doesn't look at, look at us according to our sins and transgressions. Remember the Ephesians passage, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 6. And so it's how he looks at us. And also, it sets up the guarantee of being perfected in a resurrection body when you'll never sin again. And it also sets up the potential and this is a potential because it depends on your positive volition to the Word of God, it's, it's, it sets up the potential of experience, experiencing this sanctification in our, in our daily lives as we speak, before we get to the resurrection, the rapture, the church, or our death, whichever comes first. So in other words, experiencing your sanctification is another way of saying experiencing fellowship with God. Because experiencing your sanctification is speaking of experiencing your fellowship with God As experiencing being set apart to serve God exclusively, and when you, when also we will see this in the future when we do salvation, experiencing your fellowship with God can also be uh, described in the scriptures as experiencing being delivered from sin, Satan's cosmic system. Okay, that's when you're experiencing fellowship with God, you're experiencing that deliverance, and also uh, when you talk about experiencing uh, eternal life. Eternal life, you know, you people think of eternal life, they think of it in terms, not of a quality of life, they think of it as in, in temporal aspects, no beginning and no end. But Jesus defines for us in John 17, 1 through 3, in his upper room discourse, and he said to his heavenly father, in his great high priestly prayer, he says, this is eternal life. What's that? That they may know you, father. And the word know there, in the Greek, K-N-O-W, it's Genosko. And it talks about an experiential knowledge of Him. Well, what does that mean to be experiential knowledge? If you look at the word experiential or experience in English, it means that we're personally encountering the Father through obedience to His Word, and it's forming more of. The, as a result, we're being affected by that encounter with God, and it's giving us more practical wisdom for life. That's eternal life experiencing eternal life. That's what Jesus is talking about that he wants us to experience. So when you're having fellowship with God, you're personally encountering God through through the obeying his word, having faith and obeying his word. The Holy Spirit, you and him, and the Father and the Son are communing together. That's what fellowship is talking about, which is a subject we're actually going to be teaching on in the future as well, the doctrine of fellowship. So, sanctification, there it is, the technical theological term for the believer who's been set apart through the baptism of the Spirit at the moment of justification in order to serve God exclusively and it's accomplished in three stages, positional, experiential, and perfective. Now, all three stages of sanctification we pointed out refer to the process of conforming the believer into the image of Jesus Christ, which is the Father's plan from eternity past, Romans 828 through 30. So, therefore, sanctification deals with conforming the believer to the holiness of God and it was, and, and also re- reproducing it in the believer. Now, this leads us to our passage tonight, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 1 through 8. So, let's read it in the NIV, starting on At 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 1 8. So, it says, "Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, meaning you you're doing it, but I want you to be I want you to be more consistent. I want you to get, get, uh, excel. So basically saying, strive perfection for perfection, even though we know we're not going to get perfection until we're in a resurrection body, but he wants us to excel. Don't settle. Now, don't settle for mediocrity. That's what he's saying. And that's something a death knell for many Christians. They settle for mediocrity. Never, ever do that. You should get the most you can out of this life like we talked on Sunday. You only and I only have so much time on this earth. And that's it. So we want to get, leave it all out in the field, as we used to say when we played sports. Leave it, don't have any regrets. The worst thing is that all of you, every single one of us in this room, have tremendous, incredible potential because of our union identification with Christ, because we have eternal life. Don't waste that potential. The worst thing, as I see in professional sports, and, and, and I see with guys in my life, there were guys who were much faster, much stronger, uh, bigger, everything, but they didn't have my drive. I'll tell you right now, they didn't. Because I knew that I had to excel, I had to work harder than them to be anything, to have any kind of uh, effect in the game. So I had to be smarter than them, I had to know the game better than them, and I had to work harder than them. So that's carried with me, sports has always carried me through my life, because that's the way I have to be. Because I'm not the smartest guy in the room, and I'm the, not the, the most eloquent guy in the room, and I got all kinds of things like, uh, that I have to overcome. And so the, the guys who have all these great potential, the great natural talent, and they don't—they waste it. They don't get the most out of it, what they have. They could have even a greater impact on on the sport that they're playing, in, but they don't because they 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 don't see they need to excel. So Christians need to be that way. We need to be excelling at everything. So he says, finally, brothers. We instructed you how to live in order to please God as, in fact, you were living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctifi- sanctified, Excuse me, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body, in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And that, he says in verse 6, and that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. That's interesting what he says there. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. Kind of interesting, he says there, what he says there in verse 6, when he's talking about sex, sanctification, right? Avoiding immorality. So he's obviously talking about adultery in there okay that's when you wrong your brother committing adultery you're not loving your neighbor as yourself look at he says then why he says this what he says in verse 6 he says in verse 7 for god did not call us to be impure he didn't sanctify us to be pure he didn't call us to be for elect us to be pu- uh, impure but to be pure Experientially, So he says, but to live a holy life, a sanctified life, a holy life means you're set apart to serve God's will exclusively. Then he says in verse 8, therefore, summing up what he just said, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Sorry about that, just clicked the wrong thing. So he says, therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, quickly, a little bit about this book and why Paul's writing this book, because uh, we want to understand why he's saying what he's saying here, but we also want to get a little idea of the context in which we find his, what he's saying here. There's many things he wanted to tell uh, these pe- tell these people. But first of all, you know Paul Sil- and Sylvanus. He's also called. You see the name. Uh, the Greek name is translated Silas. So when you see Silvanus and Silas, you're talking about the same guy. And he, and he, they were both Jewish believers, right, Messianic Jews, and so Paul and Silas, they went. in, Act 17, it says, they went into Thessalonica, and Thessalonica is in a region world where you have, we, we would call it the Greek, uh, the area of the Greeks, and you know you had Philippi was down the road, so these people were near each other, okay? So Thessalonica, Philippi, so the Thessalonicans, okay? They were evangelized. Paul goes and Silvanus go into Thessalonica, and as they always was their custom, to the Jew first and then to the Greek, the Gentile. So they go in three Sabbaths, three weeks, into the, uh, to the, the Jewish synagogues and evangelize the Jews there. A small rennet believed. Most of them rejected him, and they persecuted him. So then he goes, well, I'm going to the Gentiles. Now I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And as we can see from this book in 2 Thessalonians, like most of the, the, the Gentiles in the uh, in, in the Roman Empire where Paul went, they flocked to the gospel. Many believed, okay? And so now Paul has two, and, and the, this caused problems for the Thessalonians because when you became a Christian in the ancient world, it was a dangerous thing because of the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods. So if you were a, a, a Christian, you were saying, I'm rejecting these other gods. I'm worshiping Jesus exclusively. I'm worshiping him to the exclusion of these, the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods, including the city's gods, the Thessalonians, Thessalonians the, the, the gods of Thessalonica. So that would say, uh-oh, these Christians are going to get us all killed. The guards of the city are going to go and get angry with us. You sound, this may sound silly to you, but this is what happened. The guards of the city are going to be ticked off at us. There's going to be war, an earthquake. Something's going to fall from the sky. We're going to get wiped out by, you know, like Vesuvius, you know, with the, with the uh, Pompeii. Uh, so that's going to happen because of these Christians. They're insulting the gods of the city. There's where the persecution came in. And that's why Paul was persecuted as well. First, Paul was persecuted because of that with the Gentiles, but he's also persecuted because of what the Jews considered, what he was teaching, as offensive with Jesus, I crucified Jesus, and a resur- resurrected Jesus. So now Paul's, after about, he might have been there about a year, not much, and he leaves the city because the persecution's too great. So he, he goes off. So now, goes by, and him and Silvanus alone. I hope these guys are all right. How are we going to find out? Timothy. Timothy was a go-to guy, right? Timothy said, come here. Timothy, you got to go see these guys. I want, to see, I want to see what's going on with them and come back and give us a report. And then we're going to write to them. So Timothy is the one who comes out. It's sent out by Paul. He goes in there, finds out, and this is the thing what Paul was really concerned about. How's their faith? How's their love? In that order. Faith and love. Why? He was thinking about their post-justification faith. We walk, after, after conversion, after justification, we walk by faith in God's word and not by sight. So he wanted to know first if they were walking by faith in his word, because if they're doing that, then they're going to be practicing obeying the command to love one another, because faith produces obedience to God's word. By faith, Abraham obeyed God. Hebrews 11, 8, okay? So it's always that, so he's concerned about those two in or, that order. Timothy comes back with a glowing report. Say, great, there's some problems, and he's going to address, he addresses them in First Thessalonians, they're worried about the dead in Christ, what are they going to have, Is they lost, are they going to get a resurrection body like us, because they were, they already went home, what happens to them? That's why Paul writes about that, and then about the day of the Lord thing, now, you're delivered from the wrath to come, okay, and he has a problem with that in the 2 Thessalonians, so those are the things he's worried about in this letter, okay, and so when he comes now, He's talking about sanctification. Now, why would he be concerned about this? Well, uh, I think we, we've touched upon this in the past, I mentioned this on Sunday, when you talk about homosexuality. The, the Jews didn't have problems with homosexuals and homosexuality because they would be stoned to death. That's why people say, well, Jesus didn't talk about condemn, uh, 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 homosexuality, so he must have, you know, the argument from silence, right? So Jesus must have accepted it. No, no, they didn't have a problem in his culture because those people were dead if they tried to do that. Nobody did. They didn't have a problem with homosexuality in the Jewish community back in the ancient world, ever. Okay? But the Gentiles, a whole different story. You think America is Sodom and Gomorrah? It was worse back in Paul's day. If you read 1 Corinthians 5, many of the Christians, that people became Christians, not only were slaves and slave masters, but they also, they were practicing homosexuals. Some of them were doing all kinds of stuff. Remember, that in the ancient world, the gods of the ancient world, when you went to a temple, you had temple prostitutes, male and female. So if you wanted to give your offering to one of the gods, guess what? You could get have sex with one of the temple prostitutes, male or female, and that's part of your worship of God. And I know some, I know some uh, Americans would go, hey, that's a great idea. That would be big. It probably would be big if they did that. I'm surprised they haven't done that yet, but that's exactly what they were doing. And so... All these people became Christians. Now Paul, you see with Paul's writings, when he's talking to the Gentile Christian community, he really doesn't, and and, you know, Peter, when he writes to the Jewish community, Jude, they're not really worried about some of this gross immorality that Paul had to deal with. So that's why you see in the Pauline letters, the Gentiles had a a much more lascivious background. They had a much more sexually immoral background. It was everything goes. I mean, so much so, like when you talk about homosexuality, it was not uncommon, and it was not frowned upon in Greco-Roman Roman culture in the first century for men to have homosexual partners, okay? It, what, what was frowned upon was if you were a receiver. I'm not to go on. you know what I'm talking about, okay? I'm just telling you the culture that they were in. So America... Yes, it's like getting like Solomon Gomorrah, but it ain't nothing like, I mean, I, mean, I think in higher ep- echelons of culture in America, yes, this stuff is going on, okay? And that we, we don't even, it's, if you really, if you talk to some people, read some things, you're going to find out, dig, dig in and find, this is going on, what happened in each world is going on in our own culture, in the upper echelons of our culture. Eventually, it's going to trickle down here, okay? So... That's why I say that's kind of like drugs. Drug use was rampant in the, in the in 1930s and 20s and 30s and everything. They, had, they were doing heroin. They were doing cocaine. Well, it wasn't until the 1960s and 70s when uh, the Americans became more prosperous and all those drugs started coming in. See what I'm saying? So it trickles down. So whatever's going on in behind closed doors in the, in the upper echelons of American culture and power structure and the establishment, whatever's going on, it's going to trickle down to us eventually. And including sexual immorality of all types. So this is the background that we're finding what Paul's saying to us in this letter. So Paul's really concerned that they stay away from this sexual immorality that they once were immersed in and enslaved in prior to becoming Christians. Okay? So, so in other words, they, a lot of them are like us. You know, you know, a lot of people came from a background. I, I know Christians that they had some cre I mean, I remember, I, I remember there used to be uh, girls who was. This is so funny. There, in Bob's church, where I came from, you know, Bob started his church on top of a above a package store, okay. And there used to be prostitutes who would be turning tricks, and then they'd come up, they'd invite them up to hear the gospel and stuff, and they even got saved. So, in our church, there was stri- there were there were strippers and prostitutes. Former strippers and prostitutes. In fact, some of them were still uh, strippers. It was unbelievable. I said, "How did? Where did she come in?" He goes, "Well, he 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 met her in a strip bar." I was like, "You got to be kidding me!" It's like stuff like that was going on. Okay, it was crazy stuff, crazy church. But that's a lot of people. You know, people say, "Oh, you know, that person would make be a great Christian because they're moral." No, you know what I found out? The best Christians. Are the ones that were ridiculously immoral because they realize how wicked of a sinner and how much they've been forgiven. Whereas the moral person, they have a tendency to be, you know, self righteous. Well, you know, they don't think how bad that they are. Well, the person who's a, t- a prostitute or a, t- a prostitute or a, a, a stripper or whatever, a drug dealer or whatever, they know how bad they are. Okay, it's pretty obvious. Everybody in the culture is reminding them that they are as well. So that's what I'm saying. So don't, you know, that this is this is what Paul's dealing with. And this is what the church in America is dealing with today, and pastors have been dealing with with regards to their congregation. In fact, many pastors came out of many of that times of that kind of culture themselves. They were just like their people. So we have here, if you, uh, we have uh, in First Thessalonians chapter uh, four, verse one. Read my translation of uh, First Thessalonians chapter four, verse one. It says, "Therefore, in addition uh, to this, brothers and sisters, each one of us is requesting." Yes, urgently, authoritatively encouraging each and every one of you on the basis of the Lord Jesus' commands that as each of you receive from each of us instruction how each of you are obligated to make it your habit to live in a manner so as to make it your habit of pleasing God as each one of you are in fact making it your habit of living, that each of you make it your habit of excelling more and more. Make it your habit, that's bringing out the, the, the customary present tense of the verbs there, it's a regularly occurring activity. It's a lifestyle, okay? So I brought it out in my translation. I told you why. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8, actually is presenting an inference from the statement Paul made in 1 Thessalonians 3.13. If you look at your Bibles, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, um, verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. So it says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for, for each other and for everyone else, just as our does for you. See what he's praying for his, for his congreg- these people? This is what, this is what I, I learned from Paul as to what to pray for my congregation. So I pray for these sort of things for us, okay? Then he says, may he strengthen your hearts so that you'll be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Okay, so First Thessalonians 4, 1 to 8, which we just read, it presents an inference from the statement in 1 Thessalonians 3.13. So, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, is addressing the subject again of sanctification and the experiential aspect of it, and which subject is inferred from the reference to holy ones, a holiness, in 1 Thessalonians 3.13, because sanctification, as we pointed out in this study, and reminded you all tonight, Sanctification and holiness are inextricably tied to each other. They're one and the same thing. Okay? So for the child of God, experiencing sanctification is experiencing the holiness of God in one's life since they are one and the same. Now, the grammatical structure of 1 Thessalonians 4.1 is com- complex because it contains what we call two content clauses with the first containing two comparative clauses. Now, both of these content cla- clauses excuse me, contain a request which are inextricably tied to each other because the first presents the means by which the second was to be fulfilled by the Thessalonians. Now the first, the first content clause which we read in the, in the uh, NIV and 1 Thessalonians 4.1 presents Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy politely but yet urgently and authoritatively encouraging the Thessalonians to live in a manner so that they please God just as they received instruction from them to do so and which they are already doing. So this is what we got going on with the structure of this verse. Now the second content clause presents Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy politely, but yet urgently and authoritatively encouraging the Thessalonians to live in a manner so that they please God more and more. I want you to excel in this as well. Now here, when we get to to verse two, look at verse two now. It says, for each and every one of you are well aware of what type of commands each of us gave to each one of you by means of the authority of the Lord Jesus. This is when they were with them for about a year. And what's interesting, he was there with them, Paul and Silvanus with the Thessalonians, tops a year, tops, okay? It's incredible when you look at First Thessalonians and you look at Second Thessalonians, Paul taught them the whole counsel of God. He taught a bunch of eschatology. Read 1 Thessalonians and read 2 Thessalonians. He's talking about the rapture, the day of the Lord. He says, Didn't I tell you that, you know, when he talks about the day of the Lord can't happen until the restrainer, uh, the Holy Spirit's taken out of the way? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 12. Didn't I tell you night and day about this? So he taught them the whole counsel of God, not just sanctification, but prophecy. It was important, okay? That's another reason why we should do it in prophecy, as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It just keeps you from false doctrine. People are going around saying the day of the Lord's taking place. So if somebody comes around in our area saying the day of the Lord's taking place, I'll say, no, nope. we'd be gone when that happens. Here's the passage. See what I'm saying? That could be helping a brother in Christ who's screwed up listening to false doctrine. You know, because you're going to see more of that, guys. Oh, yes, you are. And the next whatever we got left on this earth, okay, you're going to see a whole bunch of this garbage coming out there. Because that's what they do. They, they use that to deceive people, false teachers, and to build them for money and whatever else they can. That's how they do. They exploit people. So they know what people like to hear, false teachers. And they keep riding those hobby horses. So First Thessalonians 4, 2, it says, For each and every one of you are well aware of what type of commands each of us gave to each of you by means of the authority of the Lord Jesus. Now here in verse 2, Paul's presenting the reason for his statement in verse 1. And he, in the former, verse 2, asserts that the Thessalonians were well aware of what commands that he, Sylvanus, and Timothy gave them by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So therefore, Paul's asserting here in this verse that the Thessalonians were to make it their habit, this is supposed to be a lifestyle, a regularly occurring action, of excelling more and more and living their lives in a manner which pleases God. Why? Because... The 4 at the beginning of verse 2 is telling you this. Because they were well aware of what commands that these three men, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, gave them by the authority of the Lord Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, Because this is God's will. People say, what's God's will for my life? Here it is, sanctification. Sometimes Paul says, uh, we think 1 Thessalonians, to give, rejoice, to give thanks in all circumstances. Good times, bad times. That's the will of God too. Okay, First Thessalonians four three says because this is God's will. What's that? Namely, the sanctification of each and every one of you. Specifically, that he, and he defines what he means by sanctification in this context. Specifically, that each one of you, for your own benefit. Okay, that's an indirect middle there, where the subject benefits. It has a, it, it, it's in his interest that they do this. Specifically that each one of you, for your own benefit, make it your habit, that's the, the, custom, that's the customary present, regular occurring action, make it your habit of, of abstaining from the practice of sexual immorality. So why is it for our benefit, the indirect middle there? Because you're going to get rewards. You're going to, first of all, you're going to grow to spiritual maturity. You'll bear more of, the fruit of, more of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Don't you want those things? Peace, love, joy, contentment, Right? So it's for your benefit. See, when you commit sexual immorality, what happens? With your sin—it's going to—it's going, to, going to bother your conscience if you have it, unless your conscience is seared, like some people, or you have a calloused heart. You know, some people—you know—it's like I'm the, the bottom of my heel. I mean, it's calloused. You could stick a needle in it, and probably wouldn't hear it, feel it. Okay, you know. So, people, some people's hearts are like that in the body of Christ because they've rejected truth so much in a particular area, especially when it comes to sexual immorality. And they've become, they become insensitive to the Holy Spirit's conviction. Okay? So he says, this is for your benefit, that you make it your habit of abstaining from the practice of sexual morality. Now, in verse 3 here, Paul's asserting that God's will is the sanctification of each of the Thessalonians. And he then defines what he means by this. By asserting that for their own benefit, as I said, they make it their habit of abstaining from the practice of sexual morality. And they would benefit from this because it would result in their growing up to a spiritual maturity or in other words that they would become more like Jesus Christ and that's what experiencing a sanctification is so important experiencing fellowship experiencing sanctification it's going to develop the character of Christ in you that's the God's plan for your lives and my life to become like Jesus Christ we were we were identified with him and you and you placed in union with him for a reason we're under his headship we're to reflect him In our lives. So every time you and I are experiencing our sanctification or our salvation, or in other words, our fellowship with God and experiencing eternal life and and personally encountering God, you're glorifying God. What does that mean? It means you're manifesting something about God. So when you experience your salvation and you're abstaining from sexual morality, you're showing the world God. They don't know it, but what they see something is different about you. Why aren't you like this? Okay, you know, I, I mean, I used to work. I'm one of these jobs. I used to work all kinds of jobs. I mean, I, I, was, uh, I worked in a paper factory. I, I've been working since I, my, with my father. since I think it was probably like ten years old. I told you, he's working a bowling alley. He, used to have, he had three jobs. He, he worked at a bowling alley. It was one of them. And he cleaned it on Sunday and everything. So we used to clean, you know, the dirty ashes when you could smoke. And pile of ash like this. And had to clean all that stuff. And the, and the women's bathroom, all, was like, disgusting and everything. They're worse than the men. It was like, unbelievable. So I was like, oh, so they're doing that. And then we used to do, okay, what else we did? Oh, I worked at a candy factory across the street from me. I had to clean that. That was fun. I used to come boxes of candy. But I'm not a candy guy. So I then, uh, and then I had, uh, what we did, I did, um, Oh, I worked in a, a, uh, a paper fa- factory. <laughs> it was so funny. You know, those, you know when you do those, uh, you know, the, when they're when they, uh, they it, and ringing you up in the cash register, those cash register roll? I used to make those. I can tell you how you do those. And then what was the other one I had um, that I was, I worked in a, a telecom company, a telephone company, and the guy was really crazy. He, he, he was a funny guy, and he wanted to do a travel business, too. So I did that, and I used to do travels. I used to go to California. I didn't know anything about California. He said, oh, you can do it. You're great. And put me out there. I was like, I have no idea. I like got fifty, a busload of 50 people. Good thing they were all regular people like me, you know, police officers and firefighters. They loved me. They thought I was funny. And one of them goes, up, you don't know anything about California, do you? I I haven't a clue. I try to tell you that. It's like my boss, but he sent me out. He says, Don't worry, you're doing great. I got so many great tips, but man, you work your butt off from crack at dawn, four o'clock, to like midnight. You, you, you crash. You're like, after 10 days, you're like, But you get a, a boatload of money with it, man. But that was a lot of fun. So I did that a couple of times. But then I went, I worked at an NEC, NEC dealer for years, and that was really good. And I could have taken that over, but it, the guy asked me, Hey, what are you going to do from 10 years from now? I said, I'm going to be a pastor. And from that point on, and stupid me, I was so naive, I had no idea what he was doing. And he's, within a year, the place was shut down. I was like, yeah, I, wouldn't, I, I didn't take, I, he wanted me to take it over and run it so he and his brother could go and play ping pong or whatever they did. And they would do some sales, but they wanted me to do it. I was pretty much running the place anyways. Hey, Arap, you know, credit decisions, all that stuff running the office and everything, you know, with the sales guys and everything. So that was a great job. I love that job. I love my bosses. So, you know, I do all these different things. And I went to an engineering firm one time. And I was doing... It was before I went to Iowa. And I mention this because I used to have... Talk about people trying to tempt you for sexual immorality. I used to have have these... um, and the reason I mention this is because they, I say about, it's something different about you. So I remember these, these guys would go, you, these engineers, and they would have on their computer. Now they, they probably, you can't do that today. But they would go, you know, they'd be throwing showing porn and the thing. When I would come in, they would deliberately flip it on. Because they knew I was a pastor, I was a Christian. And I'd be like, alright guys, alright. Blah, blah, blah. You know, I'd say, right, you gotta do this, blah, blah, see you later. <laughs> and so they try to get me, you know, to go in, to, to just see if they can, get, you know, how they can you know shake my cage right so then and then I had I, I, I hardly ever went out but one time said so the girls in the office I went out with and that was a big mistake because the receptionist who was married flashed me and I was like great this is so they have all these things you know like are you going to go for this right you know people would come the girls trying to you know it's like and I, I, I stayed away from all that stuff I was like but man i tell you I so then somebody said there's something different about you I said duh of course it is. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do what the Bible says and you guys are trying to uh, tempt me to sin or whatever, you know, it's like, it's crazy. And so I had, uh, so the, when I say, the people, and, the, and people at work, they'll say, there's something different about you. You're not all, uh, A I man was talking to Ray before class and he had Jehovah Witnesses over and they're they asking him, so you're all upset about the world and all this stuff? And he gave an answer what I gave in the past, and probably many of you do. No, I'm not upset by it. I'm God's child. I know I'm delivered from the wrath to come, blah, blah, blah. You know, so you even, no, I'm not upset. I'm not getting freaked out about it, and you probably get this at work all the time, because your standards and your 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 way you live your life is different than other people, the most of the people in your in your in your uh, periphery. Okay, that's that's significant. That means you're making an impact. Okay, so we see that that uh, uh, we have here in First Thessalonians four three. Paul again is asserting that God's will is the sanctification of each of the Thessalonians and then he defines what he means by their sanctification by asserting that for their own benefit they make it their habit of abstaining from the practice of sexual morality of any type. They would benefit from this because it would result in their growing up to spiritual maturity or in other words they would become more like Jesus Christ and when you do that, how powerful and impactful was Jesus? This is what you all have and I had the potential to do. We can make an impact Okay, you can make an impact. Don't underestimate the Holy Spirit. Just obey what He's saying, and watch God change people's lives, and you could be a part of that. Okay, so consequently, we will also be rewarded. The Thessalonians would all, by doing this, they would be rewarded, as I said before, by the Lord Jesus Christ at the Bema seat evaluation of the church, which immediately follows. The rapture, the resurrection of the church. So the Bema seat, in other words, is imminent, just like the rapture is, because one follows the other. So you think about that. Have you ever sat there? What is the, what is the purpose of doing this? Why am I doing this? I mean, there were times when, I, as a pastor, I'm sure all pastors are going, why am I doing this? Does anybody care? <laughs> it's like, you say, does anybody care? Does anybody care? Does anybody, what am I doing this for? Is it really worth it? Is everybody really going to get, you know, you know yeah, you get, it says you're going to be rewarded, okay? So don't get discouraged because, you know, it looks like you're just wasting your time and everybody else is having fun and you're not. No. At the end of the day, everybody comes to judgment. The church, the age of believers, their service... It will be evaluated by the Lord Jesus Christ. So keep pushing on. Keep persevering. Don't give up. That's one of the reasons why we're to to meet together. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 and 26. You're not to forsake the assembling of yourselves, as is the habit of some, because that's where you get your encouragement. You're not going to get your encouragement down at the bar with Billy Bob crying about that Alabama just lost another game. Well, it's actually the Patriots. They lose another game. Belichick stinks. I'm hanging him up. People freaking out about that. No, he's not down at the strip bar either. He's got those people. He's not in the drug den. They were all, shooting up, which used to be out in our backyard here. They know how they're doing that. No, he's trying to stop you and I. Okay? So we need to understand this. Don't quit. Don't give up. There's a great reward for waiting, each and every one of you. So 1 Thessalonians 4, three is presenting the reason for the statement in verse 1 that the Thessalonians continue to make it their habit of living in a manner so as to make it their habit of pleasing God and that they continue making it their habit, a lifestyle, of excelling more and more in doing so. So therefore, comparison of verses 1 and 3 indicates that the Thessalonians must continue to make it their habit of living in a manner so as to make it their habit of pleasing God Why? Because God's will is their sanctification. And specifically, his will is that for their own benefit, they are making it their habit of abstaining from sexual immorality. So the inference between these two verses is that by living in a manner so as to please God, the Thessalonians would be experiencing the holiness of God, i.e., experiencing their sanctification by abstaining from sexual immorality. How do you abstain from sexual immorality? It's the same with every sin. What did Paul say in Colossians three and Romans chapter six? Hold your place. Look at we'll go to Romans 6 first. We did this verse a couple of weeks ago. The whole chapter, but look at Romans chapter six verse eleven. Romans six eleven. Or you can just look at the board if you want. But you can go turn there. It's good to see it you in your Roman Bibles too. Romans six eleven. Now, most of the time, you go to some churches. I never hear him. I never hear him talk about that. I hear a guy who talk about you know uh, um, sanctification or talking about uh, you know, dealing with sin, temptation of sin. They don't even go to these passages. Like you'll be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. So what do you, your people, are basically doing? Their own self, self, uh, self control. That ain't gonna work. You don't have the power to overcome the temptation of sin, sin, and Satan. Their temptations of the flesh and they're too powerful for you and I. Could we conquer them when we were unbelievers? No, we have the Spirit now. The Spirit indwells us, okay? But the Spirit, when we obey what he's teaching in the scriptures, now his indwelling can benefit us. When we reject what he's teaching us in the word of God, as we'll see here, then the whole purpose of the Holy Spirit indwelling us has been negated. He's a base of operations in us. For victory. Okay? You have in you the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and there's the victory right there. Your union identification with Christ. Victory right there. It's already there. It's there if you want it. How do you do it? Romans six eleven. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. Why? Because you've died with Christ. Sanctification. But alive to God, you're raised with Christ in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Go to Colossians chapter three. Look at verse 1. Colossians 3, 1. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds... On the things above, we did this verse last. We did these verses last week. Remember, not on earthly things. For you died. How'd you die? You died with Christ at your justification through the baptism of the Spirit, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your your life, appears, rapture the church, then you will also appear with Him in glory. We're headed for glory, people. It's imminent. Then here's the application of what He just said. The first four verses. Put to death. Same thing Paul said in Romans six eleven through twelve. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Put to death. How do you do that? He just told you in Romans 6, 11, and 12. Consider yourself dead to sin nature and alive to God. Why? I've died with Christ and raised with Christ. In other words, adopt the view that God has of you. If you die with Christ and you're raised with Christ, what do you want to sin for? That's how you can, conf- that's the spirit will owe- that you appropriate the power of, of the omnipotence of God's word, the spirit, when you, appro- you appropriate that power through faith. I believe that. When you do that, you consider, I, I'm not going to sin. I'm not going to go home with Susie Q tonight. Though she looks like Halle Berry. Nope. I'm going to say, I've died with Christ and raised with Christ. And then also, by the way, run out of the place so you don't get tempted to go, don't be like an alcoholic going in the room and say, well, I'm not going to drink tonight and you walk walking with a bar. No. Don't if she's run out of the presence of the person. Okay, do what Joseph did when the, when uh, Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. He was a good-looking guy, you know, and so she wanted she tried to uh, try to seduce him, but he ran out of the ran out of the place. That's the best way to do it. Flee immorality, he says. Paul says in First Corinthians chapter six. So don't put yourself in the position where you might don't don't, don't think you're going to have the self-control to do it. You can, don't put yourself in a position where you're going to sin. Okay, so and uh, so now look at verse. Now go back to First uh, Thessalonians chapter four. Look at verse one again. First Thessalonians four one. Hopefully you held your place. Shame on you if you didn't. First Thessalonians 4:1. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as, in fact, you were living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid immor- sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. So, First Thessalonians 4, 4, my translation, in other words, that each one of you know how to make it your habit, of possessing their own body with regards to the sanctification resulting in honor. That's related to the Bema Seat. So here in verse 4, Paul's presenting, asserting here, that each member of the Thessalonian Christian community knew how to make it their habit of possessing their own body with regards to experiencing their sanctification, and this would result in honor at the Bema Seat. So in this verse, is emphasizing for us and it's emphasizing it emphasizes with the Thessalonians that each of them knew how to possess their own bodies with respect to experiencing their sanctification, and this will result in being honored by the Lord Jesus Christ at the baby seat. How did they? How do they know? Doctrine. Okay. There's many. You will hear me say, I, I Bible doctrine, sound doctrine. Paul uses in the in the, in the pastoral epistles, first Thess- first Timothy, and second Timothy, and Titus. Okay, but you could also say. The gospel, because the gospel is related to the Christian, the, the Christian as well. Read Colossians chapter 1. They were already saved. And he said, you're you obeying the gospel. The gospel for us, the good news is we died with Christ, we're raised with Christ, seated with Christ, and we're delivered positionally from sin, Satanist, cosmic system in a, a perfective sense and a resurrection body and we can experience that victory now in time through appropriating by faith our union and identification with Christ. That's good news for us. Okay? So, we, we, can, we, we can be honored, okay? God wants to honor us at the Bema Seat. So again, First Thessalonians 4.4 4 emphasizes with the Thessalonians that each of them knew how to possess their own bodies with respect to experiencing their sanctification, which will result in being honored by the Lord Jesus Christ at the Bema Seat. So they knew because they knew the doctrine. They knew the teaching, okay? They knew the mystery doctrine for the church age, okay? It also implies, people, This verse also implies that this was the direct result of Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy communicating the Lord Jesus Christ's commands to them with regards to experiencing the sanctification. And by the way, you can't grow to spiritual maturity without a pastor. No, you can't. Oh, you want to think think I'm full of baloney here? And I'm just trying to... No, look at Ephesians. Hold your place. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Because this is going on. I know Christians, they get their little Bible studies. We you know with Gertrude, nothing wrong with Gertrude. And you got uh, Billy Bob and, you know, Stu and Courtney, and know. And they, they sit in a circle. I know they, they sit in a circle. And they, and they, oh, this week we're going to teach on James. And not one of them knows what they're talking about. Okay? What does this passage mean to you? Well, I think, <laughs> talk about talking out of your hat. This is what's going on. They don't do anything with a pastor. 1 Peter 5.3 says, Peter, he said to Peter, there have been believers assigned, he's, Peter says to the elders, he says, shepherd the flock of God who have been assigned to you. People are assigned to me and people are assigned to different pastors. Okay? The pastor's gift, the exercise of his gift is how you grow to spiritual maturity. He's teaching you the word of God. Can you grow to a certain measure without a pastor? yes. But the, the system, God's system, God has systems, by the way, and I think you know that. Pastor Pig taught you that. Systems. The Bible's filled with systems. He's got a power system, He has a system of authority. You need a pastor. Just like you, you, any great team, you have to have a great coach. There's players and there's coaches. That's how it is. So, Alabama is not going to win any football games without Coach Saban or any coach. You've got to have a coach. Got to have a leader. Does the plays? Calls the plays. Knows the game. Okay. Same thing in the spiritual life. Says in Ephesians chapter four. Look at verse eleven. It was he who gave Jesus. In context, gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. By the way, pastors and teachers. That two gifts there. We know that because apostles, prophets, evangelists, all have a definite article before it, and then pastors and teachers there's only one different article before pastors. If it was five, if it was supposed to be five different gifts, you'd have a, an article before teachers. There's none. So in other words, teachers are under the, the authority of, they're under the subset we call of pastors, okay? And there's also what we call the gift of administration, which is actually the gift of leadership that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12, and he also talks about it in Romans, the gift of leadership. And so they would be considered pastors as well. So there's a, the pastors are teaching and there's people who have the gift of leadership and they fall into that category, okay? But the exercise of the teacher's gift is extremely important. The pastor teacher, his gift is extremely important. Why? Look what he says. To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up spiritually until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become more mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants. I see too many infants in Christianity, even people who are Christians for 30 years and they still act like babies. Still can't handle their problems. Then they will no longer be infants tossed back and forth. By the way, we talk about problems, my job is not to babysit you. Now, they're baby Christians, and I get that. I know, I know those. I'll take care, Of course I'm going to worry about and take care of them, spend more time with them. Of course, but at some point, you're all royal priests. Eventually, you should be able to apply what I'm teaching you to solve your problems so you're not calling up past the Bill at 2 o'clock in the morning. Oh, pay the Bill, I can't handle this. I'm freaking out. It's like... You know? That's why I put it on... You know, I learned a long time ago. You'll have to knock on my... Don't knock on my door. I put it in airplane mode or something. I'll put it... Do not disturb so you don't call me at 2 o'clock in the morning because there's some crazy people who like to call me at 2 o'clock in the morning. It better be a good read. Can't it wait till the morning when I have a cup of tea? No, some people, it's got to be now. That was back in Iowa. Anyways, so he says, verse 14, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every kind of teaching, wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Oh, all you have to do is go on the internet to see all the crazy people. How do you know that all this stuff is going on? Listen to what they're teaching. Go know the scriptures. See, if you don't know the Bible, see, one of the past things he has to do, he's not only teaching you the word of God, okay? He's also supposed to model it for you, the spiritual life. I'm supposed to set an example. Now, does that mean I have to be perfect? I wish I was perfect. I wish, I wish, I wish. But the whole tenor of my life, the whole tenor of life of a pastor, be one of obedience and reflecting character of Christ, okay? I'm also here to protect you, not only feed you sound doctrine, your spiritual food but to protect you from false doctrine because if I teach you sound doctrine you'll be able to discern which is false doctrine okay you don't have to be immersed in evil to to defeat evil and and recognize it all you have to learn is the truth and the truth will tell you when something's evil and false doctrine so if you don't come and sit under a pastor's teaching you're not protected you're not protected God has a power system the pastor and the deacons they're under his authority, okay? It's not, it's not like a not board of directors. No, I'm the, I'm the boss. I'm the leader. That's, it's on me, okay? If the deacon screws up, it comes back to me. I'm taking responsibility. It's my fault. That's what leaders do. You need a spiritual leader. You need somebody who's going to feed you the word of God. It protects you from false doctrine, holds you accountable, We need to be accountable to each other. I have to be accountable to you, and you have to be accountable to me. That's what the Bible teaches. And it's another thing that's hurting the church. Verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will all, in all things, grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. Spiritual growth. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, and that's a a metaphor for the pastor, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. Now go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and we'll wrap it up quickly. <laughs> so 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, it says, 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, it says that the Thessalonians were not to be in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 5, it says not with regards to the practice of lustful passion like in fact the Gentiles who do not know the one and only God personally. So verse 5 is an emphatic comparative clause, which emphatically marks a comparison between the Thessalonians possessing their own bodies with regards to the practice of lustful passion and unregenerate humanity. So that's indicated by the fact that Paul reminds them that they were not to possess their own bodies with regards to the practice of lustful passion, like in fact the Gentiles, who do not know the one and only God personally. So Paul, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, He's stating that these unregenerate Gentiles do not know the one and only God personally, which means that they did not know the Father personally as a result of being justified by him through faith in in Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, 6, my translation, in regards to this matter, not to transgress, specifically not to exploit a spiritual brother or sister, because the Lord is an avenger concerning all these things. What is he talking about? I alluded to it earlier. Has in fact each of us in the past communicated for the benefit of each of you? Yes, indeed. Each one of us for our own benefit, solemnly warned of for the benefit of each one of you. So we have here in 1 Thessalonians 4, 6, Paul's asserting that experiencing sanctification as a child of God is not existing in the state of transgression, which is, refers to transgressing's law, transgressing God's law in this sense of going beyond the proper limits of behavior which has been prescribed, uh, prescribed in the law. So in other words, uh, sex outside of marriage, okay? Fornication, uh, adultery. That's another one that he's talking about here when he talks about that. And he says in other places in Hebrews that the, that's a bad thing when you commit adultery, okay? Look at David. Look what happened to David. He was disciplined. Also, he covered it up, and so he murdered the guy. And so that's, and that's why the, uh, the sword never left his house. So if you have committed of adultery, confess the sin, all right, and move on. I'm, I'm sure there's people that, that have listened to my voice. Maybe it never happened, it's never happened. But if you do you, need to do, you need to confess the sin. That's the first and foremost. And, uh, and then you probably get the discipline for it because that kind of thing will come back to get you. So, 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, it says, For the one and only God by no means effectually called each one of us for the purpose of practicing sexual impurity, but rather with regards to experiencing sanctification. So, this verse is asserting that the one and only God by, means, by no means effectually called us for the practice of experiencing practicing sexual impurity, but rather with regards to experiencing sanctification. And Then, in verse 8, Indeed, therefore, the one who rejects these things, what he's teaching is by no means rejecting the authority of human beings, but rather the authority of the one and only God who gave as a gift to the Spirit who is holy for the benefit of each and every one of you. So therefore, a comparison of the statement in verse 8 with the ones in verses 1 through 7 indicate that the Thessalonians would be rejecting God's authority and not human authority as a result of disobeying the Lord's commands which Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy communicated to them. So I am communicating to you, what Paul communicated to them by the Spirit. And by the Spirit, I'm communicating that to you. You're listening to what I'm saying. To reject what I'm teaching is to reject the Lord, not me. Now, there's some guys, false teachers out there, say, well, you reject me, you reject God. Well, as long as they're teaching what the Scriptures say, because some guys say you reject me, you're, you're, you're rejecting God, when they're really teaching false doctrine. Well, they, what they're saying is not supported by Scripture. You, have no, you don't have to listen to them. You will get the spirit. You're a royal priest. You know if I'm full of baloney or not. You can look at the word of God and check me out. You can read it yourself. But if I'm teaching the word of God and I'm teaching with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ as a result, whoa, if you don't listen and obey what I tell you. Okay? I never, ever, I had to learn this. Don't take it, I don't take it personal. At times there, I do take it personal. Okay? Because I pour my heart into this thing. I pour my life out to this. And I'm telling you things I should... I wouldn't even tell some of my uh, 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 friends on the street. I'm pouring my heart out to try to show you how this applies. Okay? But at the end of the day, I have to say, well, they don't... They're not rejecting me. They're rejecting the Lord. Because he sent me. And if I didn't say... I always said... I said this one person one time that was leaving my ministry. I said, look at... I said... And it it was no justification. Okay? there's. so I said, look, you're sure that this is not where you're supposed to be, okay? Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Okay, you're really sure. Okay, because if you're wrong, and I'm right that you should be here, and you shouldn't have left this place, you're in trouble. You're going to be disciplined. And that person no longer walks this earth. They die the sin of the death. They even admitted it to me prior to... Uh, th- 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 their last fiasco. They said, well, I, I better learn the lesson. You know, I, I was under discipline, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, good, You will see you next Wednesday and Sunday, right? Well, one more time, and then after, the guy just drifted into that thing. Next thing you know, his brother's calling me up, and he, he was in a hospital, and he was getting ready. The next day, he was supposed to get a, a, a what do you call it, in his heart, a pacemaker, because he was passing out. He passed out in the hospital elevator, and he hit his head in the thing, broke his neck. Then I had to go down to Iowa City in the middle of the night to see the guy, and he's like, I thought he was going to die right there in front of me. He had to die in a nursing home. I don't want anybody to, God walks. Jesus walks in the midst of the lampstands. So as a pastor says to my voice, don't get discouraged. Do your job. You be faithful. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting God. So don't, in that sense, you can't take it personal. Okay. So Paul's teaching us here about sanctification, a very, very serious subject, and nothing can hurt our testimony more. If, if we get involved in sexual immorality, and if we do confess the sin, it's just like any other sin. The trouble is it infects your, infects your body. And if you're, you know, you're having sexual intercourse or something with, uh, with a, uh, somebody who's not even a believer, I mean, you, as Paul said, does the, the Holy Spirit indwells you, gonna, is he going to be joined to a harlot, a prostitute? You don't want that. That'll bring discipline as well. Well, let's close in prayer. Thank you for... Uh, Hanging in there, and hopefully you don't have to... I'm waiting for everybody to run to the bathroom after I say amen, all right? I'll do a quick and closing prayer. Sorry if I went too long. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray this lesson be a great blessing to your people, bringing glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. When did it stop?